If you're new with us today, we are in the second week of our series in Romans. Um, and I think what will be hard for us in sharing the gospel and sharing our faith with other people will not be the other people and will not be God. God will, will of course, be working. He will be um, using situations, circumstances, and people to speak to people's hearts. He is always faithful. He is always good. He is always working. God is not the issue. Other people, as I'll show you in a moment, I don't think are the issue as well. And I think there's this pervasive narrative out there that says that if you're not for Christ, you're an avowed Satanist and you hate everything about Jesus and you hate Christians and you just want to punch them in the face or something like that. And so, and so the move for Christians is to think, okay, well, people don't really want to hear about my faith. They don't really want to hear about this thing that's really important to myself. They don't want to hear about God or what I believe about Jesus. They don't want to hear about any of this stuff. And so I just don't want to tell anybody because I don't want to cram my religion down somebody's throat. I don't want to push and I don't want to be obnoxious to anybody. I think that's kind of because we believe this narrative, that's how we operate. And we may not say that out loud or think that necessarily, but we certainly functionally live it. We live as if people don't want to hear what we have to say about God or about faith. A recent Barna study shows that 64% of people who are either lapsed Christians, Christians who have not been to church in a month or more, and who have no plans to go back. So lapsed Christians, as well as people who don't profess any sort of faith or profess a different sort of faith. They say that 64% of those people would be willing to talk about faith and about God. 64%. That's nearly two-thirds. That's nearly two-thirds of people that would want to that don't have any issue talking about faith. Here is the issue, though, that of those two-thirds of people, only 66% of them know a Christian that they can talk to without feeling like they're going to be judged. Only 66% of those people feel like there is only one Christian that they know that they can talk to that they won't feel judged during the conversation. Does that make sense? 66% of people don't know a Christian who won't judge them in the face of a faith conversation. Now, that could mean a couple things. That could mean that they really only know judgmental Christians. Uh, that, could, that could be true, 100%. We, they could be believing the trope or the cliche that says that, uh, 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 that we see in the media that Christians are judgmental, that they're rude, and that the only thing they want to do is tell you about how dumb you are and how sinful you are or whatever. And that, that could be it, is that they really don't know a Christian at all and that they just are assuming that there will be judgment that follows in some, some sort of faith conversation. That could certainly be it. Or it could be that they haven't met you lovely people of Cornerstone who would have a reasonable, logical, loving, and truthful conversation without judging anybody, period. My, my point is to say, though, that this narrative that we have somehow stuck into our minds that people don't want to talk about God, people don't want to talk about faith, it's just not true. It's simply not true. Stats don't support it. It's not true. Somebody say it's not true. Okay, I want you to say it out loud because I need it to be in our hearts, not just in our minds. Thank you. Ooh. Come on, first service. I'm liking this today. Yeah. People, people do want to hear about what's important to you. And I think the more genuine things are in your life, the more that they want to hear about it. And I think that's just the simple answer. I think, I think the more genuine our faith walk is, the more genuine our, our uh, partnership with the Holy Spirit every day the more that people do want to have conversations with us because it's not just a thing that we do or a hobby that we hold. It's actually a part of our lives. It's who we are. And so, man, I just want to keep ever before us our purpose in Romans. 
It's not just to look at the book and learn a bunch of stuff. It's, it's, it's to take the gospel from here. Many of us know the story. Many of us know that Jesus died on a cross, that he was buried for three days, and that after those three days he rose again. Many of us know that story, believe that story, believe that Jesus has the ability to forgive our sins, and have personally accepted that, have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, but we have not taken it from here, an academic level, to, to down here as far as carrying it out and living it out. Many of us, many of us come to church, many of us maybe read our Bibles during the week, but we're not so worried about sharing our faith or being on mission to go and make disciples. What we're really worried about is all the things that begin to distract us in life. And so that's why I want to talk about Romans, because it is at the forefront of every great revival, both personally and corporately. There, there is a reason this book has been so important throughout the ages. It's because I want it to be the catalyst for Cornerstone, that we would begin to live out of the beauty of the gospel message, that we'd begin to want to share our faith. We want and not even just share our faith, but begin to impact people via the relationships that we build with them. Does that make sense? I think faith is a conversation that we can have, you know, four or five times after meeting somebody. It doesn't have to be the very first thing that you do. You don't have to shake somebody's hand and say, do you know Jesus? That might, that might ward them off. They might think immediately that you're a part of that uh, uh, crew that is going to judge them or whatever. So, so maybe there's, there's some steps before it, but ultimately there should be within us a desire to share our faith, not just because we're told to, but because it is who we are. It is who we are, and it is what we've been called to do. So before we take off today, before we start looking at the book of Romans, I want us to, again, hitch up. I, want us to, I don't want to take off without hitching the trailer, because if, if we go and try to do stuff for the Lord without the Lord, then we shouldn't even try in the first place. It's useless without him. So let's, this morning, just, just spend one moment in prayer, and let's link up with him really quickly before we take off. Father, thank you for today. Thank you so much for... Um, your grace and your mercy, your goodness and your faithfulness, the joy that you bring when your presence is near. I pray for that, all that this morning. I pray that we would experience these things anew, that we would see uh, you in a different way. We would uh, come to have maybe our, our, our thought process on you shift towards something that's really truthful and really wonderful and really beautiful because that's who you are. And I pray this morning, Father, that our hands and our feet would be enabled to walk out the gospel, to build relationships for the purpose of sharing our faith, for the purpose of seeing people impacted for you and having their lives transformed to know you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 3, 24 through 26 is where we're headed today. Uh, Martin Luther called it the most important piece of your New Testament. Y'all are like, why are you quoting Martin Luther so much? Well, he's kind of a cool guy. Like, he brewed his own beer, and he was a monk, and you know what I'm saying? He, he like, he, uh, like, pinned up the 95 theses on a church door because he's, like, that thug. You know what I'm saying? He's just, he's just kind of in your face and cool, and he wrote songs, and you know what I'm saying? He's, he's I don't know what he is, like a renaissance man uh, in, in really all regards. He's a scientist. And anyways, I like him a lot. I mean, he didn't have it all right. He was kind of racist and, and sexist, but he did have the gospel correct. And it's important for us to understand that because he gave us back the gospel. He helped us reclaim it via his study in Romans and via the Holy Spirit speaking to him. And so he told us that in Romans 3, 24 through 26, we find the most important piece of our New Testament. It is the crux of the book. It is, it is where the whole book hinges upon the proclamation that Paul makes in Romans 3:24 through 26. But before we get there, we need to build the scaffolding to get there. Does that make sense? We have to, before you can paint up to the roof, you have to get a, a ladder or scaffolding in order to walk up to that spot. So we need to look at Romans 1 through 
3, and we're just going to take broad strokes in it. I hope this week as you read that you begin to, saw, to, to see uh, what Paul was talking about as, as we begin to examine the text a little bit today. Uh, who has their Romans journals? Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Mine's here in the front. I promise you I have it. I just left it by accident right down there. I promise you it's here. Um, if you don't have one of those and you'd like to study along with us in the book with, a, with kind of a different deal, uh, it's, it's got a scripture on one page and then it's got notes just all on the other page and you can go and purchase those little journals at the coffee bar for $5. Make sure that you go and grab those um, and then study along with us in uh, cbc.family slash Romans. That's our website. It has uh, daily devotionals, Bible studies that you can be doing. Um, it's got links to all the articles and books that, that I'm reading in order to prepare for all this, so you can fact check me if you like. Uh, make sure I'm not up here saying heresy or whatever. Um, and then on top of that, on top of that, there's really, really excellent uh, uh, books that you guys need to just invest in and check out. I promise you, you're going to be blessed as you look at those. Okay, so take a look at cbc.family/romans. Follow along with us um, as we read. Next week will be chapter four, so so we're going to read that and do a deep dive. Take a look this week at that. Okay, I want us to look now at Romans one through three, and here's the first point: we're all on level playing field. For God and for Jesus. We are all on level playing field. None of us are so much better than another person. None of us are so much worse than another person. We are all on level playing field. Romans 1 through 3 will tell us that we're all guilty. That's, that's, basic, that's really the basic understanding of Romans 1 through 3 is that we are all guilty. No one is righteous. Not one. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I heard a couple of you murmuring that with me. Hopefully you know that verse. That's the verse that we're going to be memorizing together this week as well. This is the great synopsis of the preceding chapters. Okay, And I want to highlight how Paul comes to this explanation that all have sinned. That's quite a thing to say, by the way, that everybody has sinned, that all people are sinful, that sin is a prevalent issue for all persons. That is quite a claim to make. I mean, it is. Many people will begin to point out how moral they are or how many rules they follow or how many good things they have done for people. And Paul says, "Ah, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So let's begin to look at why Paul believes this is so. He says that men are without excuse. Romans 1, 18 through 20. If you want to flip in your journals or follow along in the YouVersion Bible app today, you can be with me there. Romans 1. 18 through 20, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Uh, circle wrath. Uh, this is not God is petty and angry and rude and uh, that's not what this means. This means steadily building opposition. Steadily, steadily building opposition. That's what this word means. It is the correct response to something that's wrong. Okay, it's the correct response to something that's wrong. That's what wrath means. Don't don't look at this as like lightning bolts and you know what I'm saying, like a Zeus figure in your mind or something like that. It's not what this is. Okay, verse 19. For what can be known about God is what. What does it say? Huh? Plain. It's plain to them. It's obvious. It's easily seen. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in all the things that have been made. So they, men, people, are without excuse. See, Paul is saying that the created order, that the arrangement of the natural world, the way things that are designed, says enough about who God is. You know, if the world was a mile further, we'd all burn up to death. Sorry, freeze to death. And if the world was a mile closer, we'd all freeze to death. Did you guys know that? We are so situated, particularly in, in re- relation to the sun, that if we were just a little further, just a little farther, or sorry, a little closer, we'd either burn up or freeze to death. That's wild. If we had just a little less gravity, we'd all float into space when we jumped. We'd all be LeBron, you know what I'm saying? Uh... Uh, and if we were any closer to the sun, or, or sorry, if we had any more gravity on earth, we'd all be crushed to death. Even in your bodies, the way that your body is built, the way that your cells multiply, the way that your, your systems talk back and forth to one another, the way that your brain operates. In fact, scientists still don't really fully understand how we have come to have as powerful a brain as we do and how we have reasoning capabilities past animals. It, it, it's... it's it's confounding to them even. Science, science can't quite tell us. They can tell us what it does and how it works. I'm not saying they don't know anything. I'm just saying they can't give us the why as to how we got here necessarily. We can, we can posit some theories. We can think maybe this is what happened. But what I'm trying to tell you is that all of this points to something more than just random chance. All of this points to something more than just a material world and there's nothing else. All of this order, all of this, I might even say value in the world, all of this, we, we can all make valuations. We can make assessments about things, like a sunset. Especially because we're in Texas, and I think we're in the first heaven. I'm pretty sure Texas is. Um, and, and so, because when you see a, a, a Texas sunset over, like, a lake, I mean, there isn't, there isn't anything better. That's why half of us would take a picture, probably, for Instagram right at that moment. Hashtag no filter or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we, we intuitively know beauty. Who's been on top of a mountain? Like a real mountain, not like a Texas mountain, like a real mountain. Okay, all right. Some of us have been on real mountains before. There's just some sort of like awe in you that you experience when you're on top of a mountain. There's some sort of awe that's in you when you get up to the, like the, the top of a mountain, you look out and you can just see everything for miles. There's something about that experience. Who's been to an ocean before? Not Galveston. Like some of y'all, okay, I hope, I hope when I said Galveston, you were like, it's okay. No, it's an ocean. It's, it's, it's close enough. It turned blue once. Um, Galveston and any, any other ocean, okay, we'll include them all, those, those, when you stand by them, you just feel how small you are. You feel how small you, how small you are when you look up at the stars and when you look at the universe. All of this points to something outside of just random chance. All of this points to something outside of simple matter. Now, of course, our world is made up of matter and material things. Of course it is. But it's that way because we believe God said so. God purposed it that way. And out of chaos, God makes order. God God creates design. There's a way in which he made things to be, in a way in which the world is supposed to operate. And God purposed all that. And what Paul's trying to tell us simply is that, listen, this is plain to see. This is plain to see. God has shown us via his attributes meaning his design, his mind, and his purposes, that we can see the world operate a certain way and know that there's something beyond just random chance. Does this make sense? Okay. The next thing Paul will say, though, is that we have exchanged. We've exchanged something here. Let's look at verses 22, 23, and then 25. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And before you think, oh, I'm so enlightened and I'm so evolved and whatever, and that's silly, I would never do any of that stuff. Let's read verse 25. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Many of us do that every day. Many of us will exchange the truth about God, that he loves us, that he will take care of us, that he will provide for us, and instead we anxiously do something. Did you ever think about that? That when you go outside of God's resources and outside of his will and ability to go do something for yourself, you have gone outside of God and exchanged the truth of him for a lie. That's just one example. And there's multiple examples we could go down the list. This isn't just about people worshiping idols. This is about people worshiping success and money and status and friends and relationships, whatever it might be. We've exchanged the truth for the lie, and we've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, or we've worshiped a creation rather than the creator. See, this was Adam and Eve's sin. This was our ancestors' sins, and this is now you and I. This is how we sin. Every one of us experienced this. You and I are constantly exchanging God for his stuff. You and I are constantly exchanging God for his stuff. And now, if we believe that God owns everything because he made it all, and he purposed it all, and he has a reason for its existence, then for us to pursue importance and value outside of him is to pursue his stuff over him. I want your benefits, but not you. It kind of sounds like an immature child who would come to a parent and without acknowledging their existence or life, put out a hand and say, I have to go somewhere. This, does this translate to some of the parents in the room? I need something. Now listen, we were, all, we were all immature and did some of those things, but even now, we as adults might operate this way towards God. We ask for his stuff before we ever get close to him. What I'm finding, the more that I walk with the Lord, that I don't just get his stuff without first being in his presence. And it's not that he's petty and will withhold things from me. He'll give me his stuff sometimes without me being in his presence. But what he wants really is for me to be in his presence. Parents, don't you want your kids to love you, have conversations with you, and get to know you personally? Of course you do. Of course you do. And this is how God wants us to operate. He doesn't want to just dole out things to us all the time. He wants us to know him and him to know us. Amen? So we will exchange the truth for lie. We'll exchange the truth for the lie. This is in all of us. Okay, well, what if I've never heard of sin and I'm just completely ignorant to all this stuff that you're talking about right now? Okay, good question. Let's, let's build out some evidence that Paul's going to create for this, okay? Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse. Paul says it again. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is saying that, you know, before you think, well, I, I have a pass, or, or before you think I'm holier than somebody else because I'm doing something better than they're doing, um, when someone cuts you off in the left-hand lane, don't you pray down hellfire on them? I mean, and, it's, and that's my unemotionally, I use that example all the time because it's just an unemotionally charged one. It's one that we all experience. It's one that we all think about. The other drivers in the car in front of us are doing something so stupid, so dumb, whatever, that we, that we, I'm just going to call it sin. I don't know what else to call it because I know in my own heart what happens when someone cuts me off in the left-hand lane. And it's not good. It's sin. And what what I'm trying to tell you is that you often have been in the left-hand lane and have been the one that you should have been judging. 
And you're like, no, I'm a perfect driver. <laughs> no, I, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. I'm the perfect driver. I have perfect awareness. I've never received a ticket. Listen, the one time I did, it was because... And see, that's what we do. That's what we do is when we create a judgment on something, we're not willing to apply it to our own selves. We're not willing to because, well, listen, you don't understand the circumstances. You, you weren't there. You don't realize why I had to be speeding. You know what I'm saying? That's what we do. That's what we do. But, but the reality is that Paul says if you're going to create a standard, you have to live by your own standard. And if you don't, you have violated your own self, which is sin. Interesting. This is an interesting point that Paul makes, that we are all a law unto ourselves. Romans 2 and 6 will then go on to say, and also verse 11 will say, he will render to each one according to his works. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing that God doesn't show partiality because then he wouldn't be just and he wouldn't be fair, and he is. He is 100% just and 100% fair. And so if he showed partiality, then something would be strange. And you're like, well, what about the Jews? They were the chosen people. Yeah, they were. They were. But listen, they got lambasted as much as anybody else did. Have you read the prophets? They don't often say nice things. Because the Israelites weren't following God's commands either. Even though they were the chosen people of God, doesn't mean that they got a pass. In fact, they almost get reamed out more by God and by Jesus because they should have known better. Does that make sense? No one gets away from this pronouncement, is what Paul's trying to say, and nobody's above sin and nobody's special when it comes to sin. Everybody does it, and the degree that you do it does not matter. It might be punished on earth differently, of course. Stealing a piece of candy will be punished differently than murder. Of course it will. Of course it will. Of course it will be punished because it impacts people differently, but that's not the point that Paul's trying to make. The pronouncement is the same regardless of the degree child who stole candy is no less right, sorry, no more right than someone who does something worse. They're both wrong. They're both wrong. They're no less wrong, no more right. It's all wrong, period. And here's the point that when we do something wrong, according to God's standard, it offends him. And you're like, well, that's petty. That's petty. Why would he be, I mean, he's God. He shouldn't be offended by stuff. He just, whatever. Well, here's the reality. God's not offended the way that we're offended. Here's what I got to thinking about. If God is perfection, if he's perfect, perfection would want someone else to have some of itself because then it wouldn't be perfect. And so God himself offers Jesus. God offers himself to us. God makes himself known and plain to us, as Romans just told us, because he wants us to see that in the getting of him, we'll get full life. We'll get the best possible thing available in the universe, which is a relationship with a person who loves us and wants to change us from the inside out. So it's not, it's not that it offends him in, in 2019 political terms. That's not what I'm talking about. He's not offended in that sense. He's offended because he's altogether holy, righteous, and good. And because if you go and seek something else outside of him, man, not only, not only does that hurt, it doesn't offend him as much as it hurts his heart and he knows that, he, that if you would just have him, there would be so much better for you. Does that make sense? Okay. So then, the question becomes, okay, well, if we're all, if we're all liable to this, 
what about, what about people who have never heard about it? Okay, what, what, okay, so you're saying that we're all liable, but what if, what if like people haven't heard about the Bible or like, the, like Moses' law or the Ten Commandments? What if, what if people haven't heard anything about that? Well, Paul addresses that as well. He says in Romans 2, 12 through 16, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have Moses' law by nature do what Moses' law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have Moses' law. Moses' law says stuff like, um, don't murder, don't steal stuff, don't lie. Uh, there's kind of a universal denominator, a standard morality that we all possess. Don't take my stuff. That's, that's kind of a, any culture everywhere says, says this. Don't take my stuff. How can that be? How can it be that if you don't have Moses' law or, or God's spoken law, the Ten Commandments, how can it be that we would know intuitively this stuff? Let's look at it in verse 15. They show that the work of Moses' law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Now this idea, this phrase here, written on their hearts, comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3.11. You, you all know it very well, of course. Ecclesiastes chapter 3.11 says that eternity has been etched or written on each of our hearts. We all have a sense of something greater than us. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, who's done more and experienced more than you ever will, came to the end of his life and says, all of us have this innate desire for something bigger than we are. We have eternity etched on our heart. You could call it the soul. You could call it, I don't know what you want to call it, but, but we all have this eternity-shaped spot that can only be filled by God, can only be filled by something eternal, by something lasting. And why I'm, why I'm talking about this is because we all intuitively understand that God designed the world to work a certain way, that murder is wrong and we should not steal. We all agree to these things even if we've not heard Moses' law. Does this make sense? We all intuitively understand that there is a standard of right and wrong no matter what people tell you in 2019. There is a standard, and God is the standard. And he has set the standard. And people line up with the standard because reality is the same for all of us. Now, your relationship to reality might be different than mine. Does that make sense? But reality at its bedrock is the same for all people. It does not change. There is a standard way the world operates and works, and whether you see it or don't see it is upon you and not upon reality itself. Are you guys following with me? This is the way that God designed everything to work. This is the way that it all operates. And because you don't have Moses' law, it doesn't mean that you didn't follow the correct things in general. And when you break the correct things in general, you still go against Moses' law. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Moses' law, when it was given, lines up with the reality that God created everything to, to operate in the first place. Does that make sense? When God spoke the world into being, he created a, set, a standard set, a way that things would work, a design for the universe. And so then when he gave us the law, he was just upholding, affirming what he had already done. Amen? Okay, I just want to make sure. I'm, I need some head nods on this. Okay? So before we get ahead of ourselves and say, well, if you don't have the law, blah, 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 um, this is what Paul's pronouncement is, you know, that if you're a Jew, just because you had the law doesn't make you better than the Gentile. Now you need to remember that where Romans is being written to, it's being written to a church that has both Jews and Gentiles in it. The Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles because they had the law. 
Paul's like, no, you're guilty. You broke all the laws. The first commandment is that you should not put any God before God. And you've done that. And you've coveted and you've stolen and you've murdered and all of you can just go down the list. Okay? Jesus will even come back and say, listen, I, you've heard don't murder somebody. I'm telling you, don't even be angry at somebody. Don't hate somebody in your heart. Jesus even amplifies the Ten Commandments to the next level because that really was what God was about in the first place, was not just follow these rules, but rather get to know me. The law was to point towards me. And so the Jews were like, ah, they're, they, don't, they don't get it, whatever, they're lesser than. And Paul says, no, you're guilty. And the Gentiles were like, sweet, we get a pass because we didn't know the law. And Paul's like, no, you're guilty too because you were in keeping with reality the way that God designed and made the world to be. You're also guilty. Paul is arguing that we hate just this, this innate understanding. So if being a good religious person doesn't make you right before God, and being ignorant doesn't give you a pass, then is Paul saying we're all guilty this morning? Okay, you guys are following me. Yes, that is what Paul's saying. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. That's not the end of the message. There's more. There's more. Paul will then quote a bunch of the Old Testament to prove his point, because, again, he's writing to Jews and to Gentiles, and he wants to further, further prove his point. In, in uh, Romans 3, 11 through 18, he quotes a bunch of stuff. He quotes a bunch of Psalms, he quotes, he quotes a little bit of Ecclesiastes, a bunch of Isaiah. Um, I encourage you to look at the Bible study this week. We'll, we'll post some of that material there. I just don't have time to look into it and unpack it all. By the way, I like how Paul models this uh, argumentation. He didn't start with, well, the Bible told me so. He started with logic and reason. You know why? Because God's not scared of logic and reason. He made that too. So this week when you're on Facebook arguing with people, you can use logic and reason. God's not, God's not afraid of that. And you can use the Bible as some supporting evidence, but really the Bible just supports the way that, that things work and operate. Does that make sense? It's, it's not in conflict with one another. Okay? So just a little plug right there. Finally, we get to the crux of the whole passage. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made available, made known, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law and the prophets, that's, that's Paul's way of saying the Old Testament. He didn't know it that way. That's what we call it. But that's what the law and the prophets means, the Old Testament. Okay? Paul said all of the Old Testament bears witness to something that has come outside of those things. And that is the righteousness of God. If you remember back to Romans 1.17... That's the phrase that Paul uses, that there is a righteousness of God. That God is right. He is correct. He is good. And there's this righteousness that's been made available. Let's look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let's read verses 21 and 22 together without that little insert phrase. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God, being in a right standing with God, having met the requirements to be called correct for God, is met through faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody say faith in Jesus Christ. This is important. This is important, this next verse. Because we've arrived now at the synopsis of 1 through 3. Verse 23, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Paul believes. This is what you and I ought to believe as well. But it doesn't stop there. 
It keeps going. Paul says something beautiful and amazing, and this is what Martin Luther told us was the most important piece of our New Testament, verses 24 through 25 here. Now, that all is who he's referring to here in 24. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, this is really like, I mean, this is like theology, theologian speak here. So what I want to do is I want to break down some of these words as we read through the text. Okay, verse 24. All have, sorry, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified. Somebody say justified. This is the declaration of being right with God. So if you want to write down some of these definitions, feel free in your journal. Justified is the declaration of being right with God, being in correct standing. But it goes a little further. It's not just, uh, uh, it's not just that you are no longer judged for your past sins and now God's side-eyed looked, looks at you like, I know you're going to do something next. And just like waiting is going to pounce upon you whenever you do the next bad thing. No, verse 26 goes on to t- tell us that God is both just and the justifier. That's an active phrase. That's an active thing. God, God is the one who both calls you right and then keeps you within right standing forever and for always. He justifies you. He calls you right. But it's not just a one-time pronouncement. It is a pronouncement that then lasts forever. Okay? Justification. Important phrase for us to know. Justified. And are justified by his grace. Somebody say grace. Okay, this is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. The Greek word is charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. We get our English word charitable from it. God gladly, in delight and in joy, offers a gift that we didn't do anything to get. We weren't even looking for it and he gave it to us. That's, that's the meaning of grace. It is, a, it is complete favor for you when you don't deserve a single bit of it. Not even 0.01% of it you deserved. None of it. You deserve 0%. And God gives us grace as a gift through the redemption. Somebody circle redemption and write up next to it the word slave. This is a, uh, a word that in the Greek would have meant to buy a slave out of slavery and into freedom. So we are justified, we're called right by his free gift through the redemption that is in Christ, through the purchasing that is done through Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Somebody say propitiation. (laughs) Good. Y'all did well. Good job. This means payment for, forgiveness of. Think about all the school debt that you have, especially us millennials in the room. Imagine looking at your account on Naviant one day, or Sally Mae, or whatever you think about, and going, what? Zero dollars? I, can't, I, I don't even understand. That is what propitiation means. It is, a, it is a, a wiping the slate clean. It is making things forgiven. It is debt forgiveness. Does that make sense? So God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, a debt forgiveness by his blood. This word also talks about or refers back to the Old Testament atonement, day of atonement, where the priest would go into a very, very important and special place in the temple one day a year, and he would provide a covering for the sins for the next year. He'd provide a covering for God would overlook the sins of that year. He'd wipe them away for that year. This is what Jesus did on the cross. This is what Paul's referring to. By his blood on the cross, Jesus 
but not just for one year covers your sins, but forever and for always. This is why Jesus' sacrifice was so much better than a sacrificial system where we bring a goat or a sheep or a lamb or grain or whatever it might have been. This is why Jesus is so much better and why Hebrews also is in accord with what Romans is saying, is that when Jesus died on the cross, he forgave your sins forever. Your past ones, the ones that you're committing now, and the ones that you will commit. That's wild to me. That's wild to me. This is propitiation, debt, forgiveness. To be received by faith. Somebody say faith. Faith is not just belief. It is, but it's not just belief. It's trust and conviction. It is utter confidence that something will happen, though I've not seen it. It is utter confidence that when I walk down to this chair in a moment and sit down, it won't break under me. Listen, we all operate in faith. When you swipe your debit card, some of us are really living on faith. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> some of us are really living on faith when we do that. Many of us, uh, when we, not many of us, all of us, when we tap on the brakes, we by faith know that the brakes will work. There's no question in our mind. And when they don't work, it's preposterous that the opposite is true. Does that make sense? None of us checked the brake lines before we got in our car. We just got in and turned it on and went. And we assumed, we knew, we had utter conviction that when I press the brakes, it will work. This is faith. And faith in Jesus Christ is utter conviction, utter trust that Jesus can do what he says he can do, which is forgive your sins and now set you on a life of purpose with God. Does this make sense? There's one more word that's not found in here, but it's kind of this overarching idea. Somebody say, imputed. See, through this, through what we just read, through verses 24 and 25, Jesus credits our account. This is what impute or imputed means. It means a crediting to your account. Um, This week when you got your direct payment from your uh, company, they imputed funds to you. Does that make sense? It's, It's a banking term. They imputed funds to you. That, that's, that's simply what it means. It's credited. Put something in that did not exist before. And so I want to use some plain English here to just give you basically what Paul's saying um, in, a, in a less flowery language way. You guys ready? Here's the pronouncement that Paul makes. Here's what verses 24 and 25 mean. You were offered the gift of Jesus. You didn't deserve or earn his favor. You can be charged as right with God through your trust and utter confidence in Jesus as having met the requirements to bestow forgiveness on your spiritual bank account. Before you placed your trust and utter confidence in Jesus' ability to forgive you, your spiritual bank account was negative. It was sinner. Now, God has credited your spiritual bank account and named you righteous. And he goes one step further. I love this idea. God looks at your account. You're in debt. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to justify you. You're no longer in debt because you've placed your faith in Jesus. So I'm going to just, I'm going to wipe out that debt. Not only that, I'm not even going to remember that anymore. I'm just going to write underneath here, don't remember. Mm. And then he says, you know what? Because, because I love you so much and because Jesus loves you so much, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take some of my own money and I'm going to give it to you and help you live like me. That's the gospel, guys. That's the gospel. That you and I, that you and I get God. That we get his righteousness because all of Romans 1 through 3 tells us that we're not we don't have it. We don't have God's righteousness. But Romans 3, 24 and 25 tell us that we can get his righteousness by putting our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is why, this is why it has to impact us. 
It has to get down into our heart. It has to change who we are because the reality of the gospel is that it has not only changed our legal declaration, our legal standing before God, what it should do is begin to catalyze motion, movement, thought, purpose, and understanding to walk with the Lord. We want to be righteous, not because we have a debt to pay, but because we don't have a debt to pay. Don't you get it? Romans 2 says, don't you get it, guys? It's the kindness of God that leads you to walk with him, that leads you to repentance. It's not that you have to white-knuckle, do everything, or, or, else, or else you're going to be killed and sent to hell. That's not the message of the gospel. The gospel is because you've placed your faith in Jesus, because you've been claimed righteous now, you've been called right and in good standing with God, now we get to be righteous. We get to walk with him. We get to be upright. We get to walk on his path. And see, the beauty is that you don't even have to maintain any of this. You don't have to. You should. You should. But the beauty is that you don't have to maintain your righteousness. There's not, this, there's not a karmic system where the weight hopefully balances out in the end. Oh, hopefully I did more good. It doesn't work that way. Jesus has set the scales completely obsolete. There is no more scale. There's only Jesus. And if we believe in him, have faith and utter confidence in his ability to forgive us and make our account positive, then he will. And we get to have a relationship with him and walk with him and live with him and partner with him every single day. See, this is, this is the way it works. You've been called. You've been called righteous by God. But not only have you been called righteous by God, you've been made righteous by God. Somebody say made righteous. But not only have you been made righteous You've then been enabled to live righteously. This is the gospel. You've been called righteous, even though you weren't. You've been made righteous, even though you couldn't earn it. And then you are enabled to live righteously for God after salvation. I've got a question for you. Have you put your trust in Jesus today? Have you, I'm just going to ask you a point blank. Have you, have you put your trust in Jesus today? Do you have utter confidence in his ability to make you right with God? If you haven't or if you don't know, today's the day. Today's the day to know. We've just spent 20 minutes explaining why we're all guilty and why we all need God to call us righteous, to make us righteous, and help us to live righteously. And it doesn't take your effort or your work. It is by faith alone. Somebody say faith alone. It is trust and utter confidence that Jesus will do what he says he does. Here's the reality. He is faithful to do it. He won't leave anybody who by faith will come to him. If you will by faith come to Jesus, he will be faithful to you. This is a beautiful thing. Yes, the pronouncement is that you are guilty, but oh wait, there's more. You can know Jesus. If you're a believer, I want us to marvel at God's forgiveness in our lives. I think it's Romans 2.14 that says, uh, his kindness leads you to repentance. You might want to check that verse out. If that's true, if that's true, then we should be living out of that repentance and out of that forgiveness every single day, out of that kindness that he shows us. And where we stray from the gospel, where we stray from living for God in our daily lives is an opportunity for us to line back up with who he is and what he has said about us. 
You remember what he called you? Righteous. He called you righteous. And so he says, now live it. Because I'm making you righteous. And I'm going to help you do it. I've sent the Holy Spirit to help you do it. I'm going to make you righteous. And I'm going to help you stay righteous. So when we stray from the gospel, when we get away from God, I want us this week to spend some time marveling at the awesomeness that is God, that is this message of Jesus Christ. I want us to spend time this week in prayer thanking the Lord that we have him and that we get to know him in relationship. Because when we get that out of our heads and into our hearts, it will then go to our feet and into our hands. Does this make sense? We must live it out. I already said we need to memorize Romans 3.23. You're like, well, that's the bad part. Well, hold on. It's just one of the synthesis parts. But we have to know that in order to know that there's some place to go. You know what the gospel means in English? Good news. It is good news. Because we were all guilty. And that's why we need to memorize Romans 3.23. It's one of, this, it's one of the great synthesis thoughts. So is Romans 6.23, so is Romans 10.13, uh, and so is uh, Romans 5.8. We need to memorize these together. Because in memorizing these, we can actually walk somebody through a systematic uh, a layout of how to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We know that we're a sinner, and so we know that we've sinned. Okay, so now what? Well, now you can place your faith in Jesus Christ. And here's how you do it. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. We put our utter trust and faith in him. So let's memorize Romans 3.23 this week. It's an important one for us to know. In a minute, we're, gonna, we're just going to pray, and we're going to close out, and we're going to get to watch a testimony uh, on, on video from these people who are being baptized. This should not be the only spot we hear a testimony. Because your story has impact on people. And it can. And your physical action, something like being baptized, doesn't even have to be that dramatic. It can be like uh, uh, hanging out with somebody and loving on them well. It can be that dramatic. Making a friend who's not a believer. What I'm trying to say is that there are things that we can physically do in order to spiritually walk with the Lord. There are ways in which this week the Holy Spirit's going to prompt in your mind to live out of the gospel. Does that make sense? There are things that God has for you this week. If you'll just submit to him in full trust and confidence, he'll be with you. He'll enable you where we don't feel able. <laughs> he'll give you what you need, peace, patience, kindness, love, graciousness. He'll give you what, you what you have to have in conversations and when and how you should build relationships. Pay attention to his prompting. So we're going to pray in a minute. We're going to ask for all these things. We're going to ask for the Lord's presence this week. We've got another charge. If you want to come and be a part of a church that preaches the gospel, this is one of them. This is the gospel. We don't capitulate here. We don't, we don't pull back from this message in any way. This is it. Come and be a part of a church that understands, preaches, and then lives out the gospel. Come be a part of us today. If you haven't been baptized, I hope you get stirred up to, to think about what that should look like in your life. If you've accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, your next step should be baptism. Now listen, you're not going to hell if you don't get baptized. That's not what we're talking about. It's not, it doesn't gain you entry to heaven or, or, or whatever. But it is a step in obedience. and It is a physical step that we can all see and that you get to remember forever. It's a benchmark in your faith. Does that make sense? Please, please, if you have not been baptized, come. Come to the front. Tell us today that you'd like to be. We would love to. We'd love to dunk you in some water. It's a great step. It's a great thing. It's a great symbol. 
How do you guys feel? Listen, I'm charged up, y'all. I think that Romans, for us, can be so important and so impactful. I want to see us move out of this space to live out the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for this message. Thank you that we are justified, that we are given this free gift of Jesus, this grace, this unmerited favor. Thank you that, um, that, you, uh, that you provide a payment and debt forgiveness on our behalf. And that then you don't just stop there. You don't just say it's all zeroed out and everything's okay. You go one step further and you help us to live for you and with you. Help us this week to live for you and live with you. If you're not a believer in here this morning, if you have not placed your personal trust and faith in Jesus, I'm going to help you in a moment. I'm just going to say some words, and and you can pray those in your own heart. God can hear you. The the important thing is not the words, but the way in which you believe, the way in which you trust. Is it true and honest? Say these words after me. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for seeing me, for knowing me personally. Thank you for loving me, Thank you for going to the cross to die for my sins and paying for something I could never pay for and giving me righteousness I could never earn. I know that I've done wrong, but I know that you have done so much right. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Today I believe that you can. I believe that you can put me in a right standing with God. Help me to live for you. Help me to walk with you. Help me not to veer from the path of righteousness. Help me to live into what you've called me to be, which is holy and righteous and set apart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision this morning, if you'd like to join our church, if you want to be baptized, if you need some prayer, come up to the front. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to hear about some of those decisions. Now is your moment. Are we doing baptism or prayer or singing right now? Baptism next. <laughs> so let's let's... Let's watch these testimonies. Let's be in awe of what God has for us in these next moments. Come to the front. We want to know about what you've decided today. All right, let's stand as we sing. All right, as we watch.